0: Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to patron emails. I would read your emails and then I would provide some responses. Um, After a little bit of prep, I don't just, I don't, incidentally, I I hardly ever just respond off the top of my head. I usually do some research and stuff. And so um, just know that. (laughs) This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This email is from patron Matt from San Diego. He writes, Hey, Dr. Kirk, you've mentioned that you like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the TV show. I've always thought Dennis and Charlie were characters ripe with for psychological analysis. If you ever get free time to do another pop culture episode, I would love to hear your thoughts, seeing as Dennis is a total narcissist and essentially a sociopath, and Charlie seems to have a troubled past. Yeah, uh, I have watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia two or three times through, and every night I will probably watch at least one best-of clip on YouTube. (laughs) I just just love that show. It's a guilty pleasure. I can't justify it. These characters are awful human beings, but they tickle my funny bones, so what are you going to do? Yeah, if I were to analyze their... (laughs) personalities. These are, of course, fictional people. And, you know, the the show is a bit of a card. I, I will say, if you've never seen It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the first time I watched it, I hated it. I thought this show is stupid. But then it was sort of like the first time I watched The British Office. I didn't like it. And then I, when I came back to it, I don't know, months later, suddenly it just, it, it occurred to me like, or I, I saw it for what it was which was a genius show, both of those shows. Um, yeah, all the all the characters, D, Dennis, Charlie, Frank, Mac, they all have horrible childhoods filled with actual abuse, neglect, abandonment, sometimes not knowing who your father is, substance abuse, possible even uh, sexual abuse on Charlie from his uncle, Uncle Jack, and also seeing his mom work as a sex worker while he was a child. So... You know, they make – it's all jokey stuff on the show. And, of course, if you've never watched the show, you're just like, what? That's a, that's a comedy? But um, somehow they make it into a comedy. But anyway, um, and it, the idea would be that why would these five individuals have such a history of all these problems? Well, one is, is three of them are related, so there's that. But also they – in the reunion episode, which is one of like the high school reunion episode, it's one of my favorite episodes if it's always sunny and it's a two parter, I believe. And you realize that the school, what the high school kids were more normal and these guys were very strange individuals and it would seem that they stuck together because they were the only people who would tolerate each other. So there's that. Uh, if I were to analyze their personalities, you know you're mentioning that Dennis is a sociopath, they're all psychopathic. If you just look at their behavior as it is like without a comedy lens, all five characters are some of the most psychopathic individuals you will ever meet in the world they are they they lack empathy for other people. In almost every episode, they they do horrible things to each other and to other people. Um, I just did a quick scan of season tens. Uh, you know, they, there's something like 12, 13 seasons, and so, um, so just to get some examples, I just went to season ten. I don't know why, and so I'm going to list some moments from season ten that uh, exemplify their personalities. Um, I will say that that even Janice isn't you know, these are cartoon characters, right? These are not real characters. And so they don't really, there's no way someone could actually be like this is the thing. You know, in some ways, all five of them completely lack empathy for other people and they will use other people to their own gain all the time and use each other. But at the same time, there are moments for all of them in which they have actual empathy for other people and, and seem to really care about uh, about other people's feelings, so it's a it doesn't make any sense in the in the real world in that way, you know. Um, if they made actual psychopaths, you wouldn't like the show, and it wouldn't be funny. It's the thing. So anyway, um, so in almost every episode, you can see them do at least some psychopathic behavior. For example, Season 10, uh, I think the first episode, they're on a plane, and they're, they're trying to beat some baseball player's record of drinking um, 50 to 70 cans of beer while they're on the airplane. And on the plane, Mac smuggles an entire suitcase of beer on board, and Frank gives some uh, this kid on the, on the plane a possible lethal dose of sleeping pills. So right there it's just like Mac breaks this, you know, law by bringing beer on the plane and then uh Frank almost kills potentially kills someone with with sleeping pills. And actually I'll say that when I watch shows like this and um they do stuff like that, I actually don't think that's funny. <laughs> I I think, you know, there's certain funny things that other people think are funny, where I'm just like, uh, that's a little too far in some, some respects. Like, drugging someone with, with substances and, and possibly killing them, that's not funny to me. <laughs> anyway, um, they all use cricket, if you know cricket. All, all five of them completely use and abuse cricket all the time. Um, in another episode, Charlie gets angry, um, and he tries to get their bar patties ready for their annual health inspection, but the rest of the gang uh, involve themselves in this scam involving airline miles and steaks and chickens and, you know, all these other kinds of things. And so they're, they're just trying to, they're always trying to work an angle, which is totally a psychopathic thing. The Bill Ponderosa character, also potentially psychopathic himself. Um, in season 10, there's an episode where he tries to drink himself to death, like in um, Leaving Las Vegas. And Frank and Dennis and Dee, they try to uh, profit from Bill Ponderosa drinking himself to death. Um, also in season 10, the well, in every season, they use Frank for his money. In um, every season, they will bully Dee. Um, and in another episode in season 10, Dennis has created a fake cult to trick Mac out of eating his, his Thin Mints, if you remember that episode. So... You know, very vindictive, revenge, vengeful, um, lack of empathy, uh, trying to get what they want at the expense of others. You know, very, very psychopathic, um, antisocial. They're also all suffering from substance abuse problems, it's clear. Um, throughout the seasons, they they use crack and coke and, you know, and, um, air, and uh, you know, alcohol excessively and you know they have all episodes in which dennis and d go on crack binges and you know they depict that whole thing um but in season 10 the episode where they're on the plane they're they're trying to beat wade boggs record by drinking 50 to 70 cans of beer um, while they travel from philly to los angeles um, um so anyway uh, another thing that you could say is that they're all basically suffering from some sort of personality disorder, some sort of um, massive attachment issue uh, disorder that they act out a lot. Like in season 10, Dennis and Frank try to uh, beat each other by ha- getting some woman on the plane to have sex with them on the plane. So the only reason why they're having sex with these women on the plane for the most part is because they're trying to compete with each other. So – um, There's something very strange. If someone did that, right, there's something very strange about that. Now, of course, some of you are justifiably judging me for watching a show like this if you've never watched it or you don't like it, Um, which I get. (laughs) Um, Dennis and Dee definitely have narcissistic issues. I would say that they're the most narcissistic, Dennis being more narcissistic than Dee. For example, just in season 10, which is only 10 episodes, by the way, Dennis is in one episode. Dennis is obsessed with a website that allows women to rate their dates with men, and he uses the waitress and uh, a bunch of other people to try to get people to rate him higher. He's he's so he's not interested in connection with other people. He's only doing all these behaviors because he wants people to rate him higher. Um, and Deed basically does the thing, same thing. She she has sex with a bunch of men. And um, every every night and in the hopes that they will rate um, her um, to actually to give a bad rating. She wants them. Anyway, the point is, is that they're very interested. They're overly focused about how they look in other people's eyes. And just as another indication of narcissism and psychopathy is that in the 12 years that they have known, quote unquote, the waitress, they've never bothered to learn her name. Even though I think in the high school reunion episode they actually revealed her name. Anyway, um, Mac. If I was to look at Mac, he definitely has abandonment issues. Um, and, you know, his dad abandoned him, and his mom was is is and was extremely um, neglectful emotionally. I would say just you know sort of blank and checked out. Season ten, Mac. Um, and you know his his father Luther is in jail on a murder charge and Mac desperately tries to prove his innocence but it of course backfires so um, so that that's kind of an element of Mac's personality right Charlie I would say uh, is some kind of dependent in some ways he has a hard time doing things on his own and all, um, you know sort of requires, mothering by other people. You could also also say all of them, but mainly Charlie has some sort of learning disability or some side, some sort of developmental disability. Although, you know, Charlie globally, his intelligence seems to be actually pretty good. You know, the writers of the show, one of the complaints I have is that they're kind of inconsistent with the characters like Charlie during the episode in which he's trying to pass the health inspection He's like a genius who can like pull all these different things together and manage all these weirdos and pull the wool over the inspector's eyes and you know he's just this this um, Machiavellian genius and then in other episodes he you know he's illiterate and he doesn't understand things and so you know they they tend to go both ways with a lot of these characters um, but you can say that there are, there's evidence that. Cognitively, Charlie suffers from something. Um, so that's me analyzing It's Always Sunny. Um, I, could, I could make a full long episode about this, but um, I don't think it's necessarily worth that amount of time. So let's go on to another email, shall we? Okay, this email is from Patron Alexandra. Patron Alexandra writes, Hi Kirk, I have a question. Why are some women addicted to porn? There is a lot of explanation about why men are addicted to porn, but not for women. Also, how is porn harmful? Uh, These are interesting questions and good questions and complicated topics, but in a nutshell, women develop porn addictions in the same manner that men do. um, Usually as a result of trauma, anxiety, OCD, general disposition for compulsion, um, sexual issues – um, addiction, history, that kind of thing. Um, our society sees it differently for sure. They, Well, they look at sex in a very weird way in general, uh, porn being a part of that and gender um, is, you know, often a part of that as well. Um, so, you know, our society is completely busted up about sex and about gender and about porn and about shame, and so anytime you have a you know all all if anytime you involve all those different things, and you're gonna you're gonna get some weird perspectives from humans. Um, you know the pre- the presentation between men and women and and porn addiction is 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 the same in my experience. You know you have people who will compulsively do it. it it'll be an uncontrollable itch. They'll use it to escape to isolate. Uh, there'll usually be some kind of shame spiral involved uh, dissociation can be involved PTSD or some other anxiety that is temporary um, temporarily relieved by the porn and masturbation I mean really what we're talking about when we're talking about porn addiction often is masturbation addiction um, it's it's um, it's part of the masturbation ritual shall we say it's it's sometimes people are purely addicted to porn and they don't masturbate at all and and they have a compulsion about just looking or compiling or collecting porn. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different t- types, I, s- I should say. But um, sometimes porn addiction or por- compulsive p- porn use is a ritualistic thing. People like to we're, – we're very real ritualistic creatures, habit creatures, and sometimes we take a lot of uh, comfort in following certain compulsive rituals, um, certain uh, routines that we get into. Um, Also, when we lack connection with other people, sometimes porn and masturbation can make us feel at least um, virtually connected to other human beings. Uh, You ask how porn can be harmful. Porn can be harmful in several ways, but the vast majority of people – do not experience it as harmful. I mean, you could make the argument that it distorts everyone's idea of sexuality, which obviously is is you know true for for many, but but for many people they understand, even kids they've done research, understand that porn is not a an accurate depiction of reality. In the same way that kids understand that video games and TV shows and movies are not an accurate depiction of reality, you know, it's it's a fantasy world and and so um you know cuz that when when internet porn first became prevalent um 15 years ago 20 years ago there was this huge paranoia that kids were going to grow up like completely screwed up and research has showed that although there might be some kind of of an effect the the our society hasn't crumbled <laughs> so um so you know there's an effect, and for some people, it absolutely can be a problem, but it's it's not really the boogeyman that everyone thought it was going to be um, There's lots of really sexist information on the internet um, within the porn world but also but also just about porn addiction quote unquote you know um, it's mostly so I did a quick Google of um, you know women porn addiction or female porn addiction, and for the first i don't know several pages of Google they are all Christian sites. Some of them don't look like Christian sites, but it's actually really interesting that Christians' uh, internet sites are obsessed with sex and porn and masturbation. It's really interesting. I mean, on the positive or pro-Christian side, you could say like, well, you know, it's a sin and there's people need help with that. And our society bombards people with a lot of temptations to follow in the... Um, path of the devil and to be tempted by sin, and so these these sites are cropping up to help people cope with that uh, Another possibility is that Christians are so suppressed and repressed regarding sexuality that they just can 't stop thinking about it, <laughs> and they are obsessed with controlling sex and obsessed with controlling other people 's sexuality and judging it and and it 's just frequently on their mind because they have a hard time with it themselves. Um, of course, I have no way of answering that question, but I just found it interesting that uh, I found I found it dually problematic. One is that the Christian sites universally talk about sex and porn and masturbation as a problem and, and as a sin. At least the the popular sites that I saw. Um, I also see it as a problem that our society and our and our Psychological psychotherapeutic profession has not been vocal enough about the reality of this um, t- The reality is that porn addiction isn 't a thing in our world we we don't uh, clinicians don 't diagnose people with quote unquote porn addiction um, we diagnose people with compulsions, but not there 's no such thing as porn addiction. We reserve the word addiction for very Uh, very few sorts of things. And in fact, for the most part, we don't even use the word addiction for anything anymore. We use problematic use, which is much more descriptive because addiction, the the word addiction has become so fucked out in our society that most of us just don't use it at all anymore. Um, So, uh, but on the internet, you'll see plenty of signs and symptoms. And so let me just kind of go over that here. Um, Half of the symptoms that the Internet proposes that are signs of porn addiction are at least partially, if not wholly, cultural. For example, um, continued porn use despite promises made to self or others to either quit or cut back. So if you're talking about, say, cocaine use or something, and you're trying to cut back and you're, you know— you're promising yourself, oh man, I've been using every day, I need to cut back, then then that makes sense, right? It makes sense. It's like, oh yeah, maybe you do have a problem with cocaine. Well, if you look at porn once a year, and your society and your family and your culture is telling you that you're going to go to hell because of that, and you make a promise to yourself and to other people that you're never going to do it again, and then once two years later, you look at porn for three minutes and masturbate. Do we call that a porn addiction? No, (laughs) it's far from it. Um, You know, uh, frequency is rarely an element of addiction. I mean, we really just have to look at like the consequences. But in a situation like that, we'd say, oh, well, um, you know, really, what we're looking at here is that you have an individual who just really doesn't want to look at porn because of their religious beliefs and their moral beliefs or whatever, and that's fine. Um, and they, you know, they don't want to ever do it. And then, you know, they do it a few times every now and then, and we—that's not a compulsion. That is, you know, you could, I guess, you could say the person is compelled somehow, but um, we would sort of understand that as um, not a compulsion or addiction, right? And yet they would fit this criteria, right, because. They continue to use porn despite making promises to self that they're going to quit. So it's unclear if that one is a good indication of quote unquote porn addiction or compulsive porn use. Another possible cultural sign or symptom here is continued porn use despite di- directly related consequences. So again, if you're using alcohol and you're experiencing hangovers and you get fired from a job and your, you know, your husband divorces you, or you uh, end up getting an STD. You know, all because of drinking alcohol. Then, yeah, you have a pro- and and you know you're having these direct consequences of of uh, from you from drinking. If you continue drinking, then yeah, that's a sign of problem use, right? But if you're watching porn and your society considers it this really horrible thing. And people end up judging you. And, you know, so say you look at porn and your church excommunicates you because you look at porn and, and yet you keep using it. Uh, You keep looking at porn. Well, that's continued porn use despite direct related consequences. Right. But is that, you know, should we be looking at that as an addiction or should we be looking at that as a cultural societal issue? Again, Whenever we're talking about mental disorders, as I talk about in other episodes, it's a very squishy area. So, you know, you can make a debate either way. But the point is, is that all that needs to be considered. Other cultural signs are diminished self-esteem, depression, anxiety, or other emotional and psychological issues, or lying or keeping secrets about your porn use. Again, all these things could be in the context of societal shame around this. Um, you know, like... Just jump off of porn use for a second, and just take take a you know an eighteen year old boy who lives in Alabama who is gay, and he is um, wanting to have a boyfriend, and so he's looking online at um, gay websites or you know uh, t- uh, what do you call Tinder for gay people, Grindr, you know or just doing things along those lines, but if you looked at it, they would they would be trying, you know, and, and they're beating themselves up about it because they have they have internalized homophobia. Well, they have continued use of this, beha- you know, continued behavior despite uh, promises to cut back, continued behavior despite consequences, um, diminished self esteem, depression, and anxiety because of it, and lying or keeping it secret. I mean. All of those signs are there. So, would you call this person is, is addicted to gayness? No, you you understand this is a this is society's problem, not not the person's problem. So, the same goes for porn. Um, now, this doesn't mean that someone can't have a problem with porn, which I'll get into in a second. But now, some of the signs you'll see on the internet that are more in line with compulsive, you know, an actual compulsion is progressive use of porn for longer and longer periods of time. So this is a hallmark of any kind of progressive compulsion. People will—they need more and more and more of it to the point where someone will be using pretty much any time, any free time they have. Or you know, there's things on Reddit sometimes people will porn. People will post um, like funny videos of people. They'll catch people looking at porn like on the bus or on the on an airplane or something. You know, Someone will be watching porn on their laptop and they don't realize that people behind them can see their laptop. And whenever I see that, I think, oh, that person might actually be addicted to sex. That, so that's the other thing. It's like to be addicted to porn, I've never seen that. It's usually like just a general issue with sex, um, sexual compulsion, so you, shall we say, anyway, um, or masturbation for that matter. Uh, another thing about that's really true about a lot of problem use or compulsions is progressively using more, uh, more and more, and for you know more intensity. Um, they, sometimes they call it bizarre pornography, which is in the eye of the beholder. But um, another sign is escalation from compulsive porn use to other forms of sexual sexual compulsion, like um, you know working your way up to sex workers and this kind of thing. And that's also a hallmark of any kind of compulsion. And I've seen, I've, I've worked with quote unquote sex addicts where that's the case, where it just, it's progressive. It just, it becomes more and more, it becomes more and more of a stretch, more and more risky, more and more um, intense. Uh, you know, there, there were things in the beginning of their compulsive road that would satisfy them that would, would never satisfy them in the present. Um, also, reduced interest in real-world sexual activity. So, the, and again, the language is cultural, right? Real-world sexual activity. We tend to privilege, quote-unquote, real-world sexual activity. Why do we do that? I mean, what's, what's, what's inherently wrong with looking at pornography and masturbating? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing objectively wrong with looking at porn and masturbating. There's nothing objectively wrong with doing it every day. There's nothing wrong with that. And the Internet is devoid of any sex positivity around this and any kind of suggestion of just like, well, you know, it kind of depends on how you want to look at it. And um, sometimes porn use... And masturbation can be a wonderful thing. It can release good feelings. It can relax you. It, you know, relieves tension. <laughs> um, you know, satisfied is an urge or something. You know, I, there's, I didn't see anything on the internet that talked about it. I'm sure it exists, but the vast majority of the stuff and of the messages you'll see in society is along those lines. Having said that, you know, it, porn, absolutely, there's problems with it politically, um, gender, um, body dysmorphia, you know, slave labor, um, you know, weird sort of depictions of sex. So there's, there's absolutely a problem, but, you know, it, it's like saying that we should, you know, uh, ban alcohol because of drunk driving. There, there's, there's people who have a glass of wine at night and it, or a couple glasses with their friends and, minimal consequences, and then there's really bad consequences. Or there's alcohol being produced in countries where it, they're using slave labor. And that should be looked at. So it, it should all be looked at. But it doesn't mean that the whole thing is um, immoral, in, in my opinion. Um, so a typical profile of someone who has a problem with pornography or sex in general is that nearly all of their time is spent in some sort of sexual activity. For example, they get home from work and, the, and they just can't, they just have this uncontrollable itch that they, and so they go home and, you know, say their friends and family are calling them to do something and they're just like, no, 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 I got to go home, look at porn, masturbate, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it three times uh, and, and then I can finally relax. And, and then it gets more and more progressive where they might be seeking online partners or they might be going to sex workers. And often the actual sexual activity is just a small part of it. The, a large part of it is the, the ritual of searching. And again, it's not if you've, if you've ever had a compulsion, then you understand what this is. But if you've never had a compulsion, then it's really hard to imagine what this is like. Just imagine somebody spending, you know, sex addicts that I've worked with the, the kinds of lives that they'll tell me about is they will go on benders, essentially, and they will they'll get home from work uh, on Friday, and they'll be like, I'm going to let loose this weekend, you know. And, you know, a- addiction uh, or substance abuse might be involved. Um, actually, let's take a break, and when we get back, I'll continue this talk. All right, we're back from the break. So again, just continuing, you know, we for for typical people with a problem with sex and you know problem with compulsive sex is they'll get home from work from Friday, and they will in their in their head they they they're very ambivalent about it. Part of them is just like. I know I need to not go down this road. There's a lot of bad things that I get into if I really let loose. But there's another part of them that's just like I just want to let loose. I want to satisfy all my urges. I've been I, I deserve it. I've been pent up, and they get home from work and they just say and you know and they they go online, and they start and they might spend eight hours looking at different sites, browsing different people's profiles, you know, uh, sex workers. People looking for hookups and they'll never leave their house. Masturbation might be involved in that, but most of the time it's just searching and looking and cataloging and thinking and um, in kind of in a daze to some extent. And then they might hook up with some, you know, they might get a couple of drinks. They might hook up with someone later that night. They, they go to bed. They wake up the next day and it starts all over again searching and looking. And, you know, it, it's a. Um, it's a they might get in their car and and in Seattle it's known that sex workers are on a Highway ninety nine. They might drive up and down Highway ninety nine for like five hours. Um they might pull over and maybe kinda chat with one of them and then go, well, I'll think about it, and then they drive away. And this is not a good feeling. This is not like the the way it feels to go shopping for a new car or something. It it it's it feels very, the people are usually very busted up about it. They have an incredible urge. They have an incredible itch that they need to scratch. They're trying to scratch And they're just kind of, it's almost, so the metaphor that I would have is that, imagine the worst itch you've ever had, you know, on your, on your leg. You know, you have this, you have this incredible urge to itch your leg, but you can't, or no, no, no. Ah, here's a better one. You have a v- incredible itch in the middle of your back, and it's the one spot in your back that you cannot reach with your arm. You are trying to get it and you just can't get it. That's what it's like. That's what a compulsion is like. And you can't do anything, right? You can't think, you can't you can't love other people. All you can your mind is consumed by this this itch that's just pounding away in the middle of your back and you cannot reach it and nobody can you know there's no back scratcher no one can you know and so you spend all weekend long searching for a way to, to to itch this thing to the point where your life just kind of burns out and then you just go back to work on monday and so or some people just completely go on you know week you know weeks and weeks of benders and so that's what compulsion is right looking at porn for 10 minutes in the evening and masturbating is, I hope you understand, far from that reality, right? Um, Now, I hope you understand that we can't really put a time limit on this because certainly for some people, their compulsions can be quite short. But really, it's all in the description. When you talk to people, and and I've talked with a lot of people about this, when they come to me, I'm like, uh, you know, they're like, I have a a porn addiction or I have a sex addiction. I'm like, okay, you know. If someone came to me and said I have a problem with smoking cigarettes, I don't need to really do this with them because we don't have as much of a busted up culture regarding cigarettes as we do about sex. So when c- people come to me and say they have a sex addiction or a porn addiction, I have to I have to spend several sessions just kind of sifting through what they mean by that. You know, I take a full assessment of their behavior, why they feel the way they do about it. Have they ever had a balanced life around it? How do they, you know, what, what messages religious-wise did they internalize about these things? And it takes a long time. It's a collaborative process. Um, now, if someone has a quote-unquote problem and they self-identify as having a problem, even if they only look at porn every now and then, then that's fine. I wouldn't define that clinically as a compulsion, but anyone can make any goal in their life that they want to make, right? If someone says, I never want to look at porn for the rest of my life because I don't want to, and I want Kirk, you to help me to do that, then then I'm here to help, you know? I'll talk with them about like, well, you you realize that you're not mentally ill, and you realize that there's nothing really clinically wrong with you, and they're like, and we might talk for a number of sessions to kind of explore that. But in the end, and I've had clients like that, where they're just like, yeah, I get you know, I get that I don't really have a problem with this. I get that my impulse is normal, but I just morally and spiritually just, I believe that looking at porn is wrong and masturbation is wrong. And I just want your help to, to refrain from it. And I'll be like, okay, great. That's fine. I'll tell them that I have reservations about this sort of sex negativity they're involving themselves in, but you know, everyone's free to decide what they want to. Um, so, yeah, you know, the analogy that I might, another analogy you might have is that if you're trying to lose weight and you vow that you're never going to eat another donut and you eat a donut once a month because you, you know, lose willpower or something, then we wouldn't call you a donut addict, right? We would just call you a normal human who went off track on your weight loss program and we would just say, and and if you went to a therapist to say, "Please help me to stop eating donuts because I'm I'm trying to lose weight," then okay, that's fine. I might you know say you know a donut every now and then is okay. And if they're like, "No, I don't want to eat a single donut," it's like, okay, fine. So, but we wouldn't call that person a donut addict, right? Well, why do we go so far to just label any kind of um, you know thing in this category, sex sex addiction or porn addiction, right? it's 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 because of our stupid culture. Okay, so looking at research, there's a there's a lot of uh, terms in in the research literature. Sometimes they refer to it as self-perceived pornography addiction or SSPA. Now, this is a this is an interesting term because basically what they're saying is like there is no such thing as pornography addiction, but there's a lot of people out there who perceive themselves as having pornography addiction so we are going to label that as self-perceived pornography addiction <laughs> another term that i i like which a lot of researchers are using is problematic online pornography usage so it's it's not just porn right it's online porn right and if someone has a problem with it then we just let's just call it you know problem online porn use um also in the literature, the consensus is that porn addiction is not a formally recognized disorder, as I was talking about before. And in the research literature, a lot of researchers are pointing to the fact that there's a lot of disagreement regarding what its definition is or even if it exists. So in the in the world of psychology, it's um, not a controversy that um, – uh you know the research literature in the field of psychology is more in line with the way i'm thinking uh, whereas society has a completely different point of view and you know people out there who are researchers and educators and therapists i think we all need to do a better job of getting the word out because i think a lot of people are suffering unnecessarily or they're not seeking help because they they think that it's stigmatized or we don't talk enough about it or something anyway So a lot of research about online porn is more recent, obviously. So in 2016, these researchers found that self-perceived pornography addiction is most frequently operationalized by researchers as excessive pornography use and the negative consequences that come with it. As a result, researchers tend to focus on the frequency of pornography use and related impact as determinants of SPPA. So, in other words, what, what these researchers are finding is that a lot of times researchers will just reduce quote-unquote porn addiction to frequency of porn use. And what these researchers are saying is, is like, well, you can't really do that, right? Because some people can use a lot of porn and be fine, and some people can use just a very little bit of porn and actually have it be a problem. But it's a lot easier to ask someone, how, much, how often do you look at porn? It's much harder to, to uh, you know, numerically measure the impact of porn, particularly because of culture, as I've been talking about, right? Um, other things here. Self-perceived pornography addiction is reported to affect users and their partners in similar ways, such as increased feelings of isolation and relationship breakdowns. However, we, find, we found some method, methodological – basically in the, this study, there, when they're looking at other studies, and they found a lot of limitations in a lot of the other um, uh, you know, compulsive porn use research. It's just a really hard thing to research. A lot of the actual journal articles that I saw were actually looking at societal impacts on the way we look at porn addiction rather than actually looking at porn addiction itself. Another study, 2015, found that the majority of therapists p- providing individual or couples therapy have seen clients with identified pornography issues over the past year. So, about 75% of individual and couples therapists report having. W- having some client come to them with quote-unquote porn issues. Now, whether or not those people actually had porn issues or not, but it's interesting that, you know, a majority of therapists say, yeah, people come to me to talk about this, and yet, you know, we barely ever talk about it in the clinical world. Another 2015 study, 67% of male university students believe their pornography use is an acceptable form of behavior, and 20% found their behavior to be unacceptable. So, So about a fifth of college students who are usually the subjects of these kinds of studies report that their porn use is quote unquote unacceptable. Now, and in the study they're, they're not saying that's actually unacceptable. They're saying this is how they just perceive it. 50% of boys and 30%, 32% of girls who viewed pornography experienced guilt or shame in relation to this behavior. So this is actually an interesting statistic is that Of the people who look at porn, uh, boys and girls, boys are more likely to be ashamed of it than girls are. So isn't that interesting? Uh, Now, if you depend on the Internet to give you statistics, you are going to be led astray. There are lots of terrible stats that I read on these Christian sites. Um, One stat was 70% of men report having a problem with porn, which is counter to all the other actual psychological studies. 70% 70% of men report having a problem with porn. Like what? Like you know, nearly every man has a problem with porn, huh? Um now, I'm not hacking on Christians. I'm hacking on these particular Christian sites I saw. Um I I'm, I know many Christians who have extremely sex positive, sex forward ideas. So anyway. Um and uh yeah. So what else can I say about it? I've treated women who have issues with porn and masturbation and sex. Um, again, it's this, it, it looks ex- exactly the same as it does for men. and um, you know there there are women who report it's like they would they would have a tension build up over the day and they would sort of rush home and masturbate or rush home and look at porn and masturbate. And it was their only way of relieving their tension and they didn't feel good about it, you know and um they would isolate a lot and you know when when you masturbate an orgasm it releases actual chemicals in your brain uh, usually that can uh it's you know like a dopamine rush like heroin or something or alcohol and it um relieves tension you know and if you're suffering quite a bit then uh, it 's one way that you can actually develop into a compulsion because your brain learns ooh, you know that is that was good. keep doing that, I need that and really, the problem is not the quote unquote addiction it 's the the issue is that someone 's suffering and they don 't really have any other way of of healing or or working on that, which is really the driver of the vast majority of um, quote unquote addictions i 've never met someone who had a problem with heroin or cocaine or alcohol or marijuana who uh, wasn't driven by some loneliness or PTSD or attachment issues. It's it's always been the case. So this is no exception. Um, so, yeah, uh, I could go on and on, but let's end there and go on to another email. Okay, this next email is from an anonymous patron. They write, Dear Dr. Kirk Honda and Umberto, I was one – so I'll just take this myself. Sorry, Umberto. I was, I was wondering if you could talk about the best way someone should enter a relationship with another person that is, recovering, that is a recovering drug addict. I recently met a really amazing guy, but he has opened up to me about his struggles with narcotics. For the past two years, he has been working on being sober. He has gone to multiple rehabs, is currently living in a sober living apartment, goes to meetings daily, and has a good relationship with his sponsor. All that being said, from your podcast and from my own personal history with an alcoholic father, I feel as though he is on the right track and is fighting this battle the best he can. However, I know he has slipped up a few times in his recovery. The last time he used substances was six months ago. I really do like him and would want to be in a relationship with him, but I have concerns. Is it even a good idea for him to start a relationship with me at this time? Could a possible breakup send him into a relapse? how do i go about how do i go about going out to bars and clubs when i feel it might be hard for him to hear about that uh, okay good questions complicated issue first thing i'll say is that patron you are very healthy for exploring this uh, you know instead of just blindly going into this it's like oh, you know there there's some questions and these are all important questions to continue exploring. There's no way I'm going to be able to answer them here. These are things that time will tell. Um, but the one thing I will say is that, in general, people in recovery can be wonderful partners. People who are in the midst of uh, substance abuse can be wonderful partners. There's really nothing, um, there's no way of knowing. You know, you just, you know, there are people who don't have a history of substance abuse that are terrible partners. So there's just no way of knowing. And there's 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 certain dogmas that people will say. It's like, well, when you're in early recovery, you don't want to be in relationships. And some might consider him to be in early recovery. But, you know, you really have to take on a case-by-case basis. Sometimes being in a relationship can actually really help, you know. So it's hard to say. Um, and sometimes people in recovery can actually be better partners than other people because – when you go through recover, when you go through recovery, you really have to look at yourself, and you really have to take inventory, as they say, of your life and of your issues. And you have to build up really strong support systems, and you have to take responsibility for your behavior, and you have to put effort into healing. And so, sometimes people in recovery can be really self-aware and caring. So, you know, being in recovery can actually be a, a pro and not a con. Um, The other thing is, is many, many people are actually recovering from an addiction of some kind, whether it be cigarettes or alcohol or, you know, some many people are recovering, uh, whether they identify as such or not. And so if we said we're never going to date people in recovery, we would probably we would be limited to very few individuals. Now, having said all that, there are risks to dating someone who is recovering, especially in early recovery, but really even um, 20 years later. I mean, the sort of issues that lead one to become uh, addicted to narcotics is, you know, usually, like as I've, I've, as I've been saying, it's usually trauma, PTSD, family of origin issues that don't go away even after you recover. And so, you know, it's complicated. But to go over some of your questions here... Is it even a good idea for him to start a relationship with me at this time? Again, it's hard to say. And really, I wouldn't worry about that yourself. Uh, that's his journey. It's his, it's his recovery. That's, that's up to him. You, you, I mean, you can ask him. You can be like, so, you know, is it, do you think it's healthy? And are you exploring that in your groups? Are you talking with your sponsor about that? But really, you know, that's up to him to decide. That's not your responsibility. You ask another question. Could a possible breakup send him into relapse? This question actually is a bit of a yellow flag of, uh, to me regarding where you're coming from. I mean, it's great that you care and it's great that you don't want him to go into recovery. But to put that burden on yourself or to take on that burden is kind of classic codependency and a bit worrisome. You know, to, to worry that, oh, no, I better not break up with him because that will cause him to go into relapse is um, not your responsibility not a helpful attitude, honestly, and ultimately not good for him because, you know, let's say you stay in a relationship with him and the only reason why you're in it is because you just don't want him to relapse. You know, he he would get that energy and he that wouldn't be good to him. So it's a little bit of an interesting question that you would even ask that. So I just want to emphasize that um, you probably should be exploring this in Al-Anon um, you should have a relationship with a sponsor. Maybe you could go to a- AA meetings or NA meetings with him. Um, there, you know, there. I would if if you really want to explore this and really want to hit this head on. Uh, being, ha- you know, going with him to meetings, having a relationship with his recovery, being a part of his recovery, is. Um, is can really help, not only in sort of alleviating any fears you have, but also bringing you guys closer, maybe, if he wants you. Maybe he doesn't want you to come to his meeting, so you have to ask him. But at the very least, I'd go to Al-Anon meetings because you, you seem to be exhibiting some attitudes that uh, would lend itself to Al-Anon meetings. And Al-Anon meetings are for family members and loved ones of people who are in recovery or who should be going through, through recovery. You ask another question, how do I go about going out to bars or clubs when I feel it might be hard for him to hear about this? I would just talk with him about that. And it's, again, it's good that you care and it's good that you're thinking about that. And I would, you know, I would just ask him um, what he, how he feels about it. At the same time, you have rights. And if you going out to clubs and bars, triggers him somehow, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't get to go out to clubs and bars. So don't sacrifice your life for his recovery is the thing. Um, if, if your life, if the way you live your life normally challenges him, it's kind of up to him to figure out how he's going to navigate that. You don't have to codependently ruin your life just because it makes things easier for him. Um, at the same time, you have to balance it out with being realistic and you know, like you wouldn't want to have a party in your house with a bunch of people drinking or using drugs when that would challenge him. Right. So there's, there's a, you know, a gray zone there in terms of uh, being a responsible, nice partner and also not giving up your entire life for another human being in their recovery. It's a very squishy thing. And it and it really requires a lot of exploration and, and, and the nice thing is, is 12 step groups have, a lot of history and a lot of wise people who have been through things like this and you'll get differ different opinions, but uh, it's worth exploring and talking about. The key is, is that you just continue to talk about it, continue thinking about it, continue exploring. And really, if you find yourself heading down a codependent and a, um, you know, sort of, uh, selfless road, um, other focused road, really as they say take take inventory of that and make sure that you're not dysfunctionally giving away your life for someone else's recovery again it's great that you care it's great that you um are trying to help and and you should care and you should try to help but there's a there's a line between that and dysfunctionally giving up yourself, which of course you would resent and then passive aggressively take that out on him, and he wouldn't like that either because he doesn't want to be involved with someone who's empty. He wants someone who is there. And that means, you know, being a real human being with your own wants and your own identity. So, um, hope that helps. And again, go to meetings, maybe get a therapist, go to Al Anon. That's uh, always good things to do for everybody. And that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. If you have comments, you can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Also, if you're not a patron yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com. You might have to actually go to a computer and sign up. That's the best way you can uh, show your love for the podcast. We're getting close to our next Patreon goal in which we will start a scholarship fund for uh, needy and struggling students who want to study to become a psychotherapist. So uh, we're getting We're getting close, so uh, go to Patreon right now if you haven't already. Um, And that is it. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You, You really, really do.